of the Political Science Report. I'm John Murphy, and each week I bring you an episode that goes into depth and breaks down an important piece of literature in political science, from really important historical pieces to very current pieces. And so we resume our series that we're going through of the six most impactful recent publications from the May 2022 edition of the APSR, and again, those rankings are based on the attention score that were touched on last episode, if you want to see how those are ranked. And so today, we're looking at a great piece titled, The Effect of Television Advertising in United States Elections. This one has an attention score of 109, the last one we looked at had 102, the highest one we look at I think has 438. And I am skipping just ahead of one. There's also one that we're going to look at next week that has a 108 score. So technically just above this, but if I calculated, you know, all the different scores in the most recent edition or in the May edition, I think the difference between a 108 and 109 would not be statistically significant. So I feel confident in not necessarily lumping these together, but I thought this was a little more relevant to the last piece that we talked about in terms of American political behavior and elections. And then next week we'll dive into something a little bit different. So this piece is by, or this article I should say, is by Dr. John Sides of Vanderbilt University, Dr. Lynn Vavrick of UCLA, and Dr. Christopher Warshaw of George Washington University. So let's get into it. I've looked at a little bit of research from some of these researchers before, and I do enjoy it. It's kind of up my alley, the alley I'm trying to go into. But let's look at this one. This is one I have not seen before, as it is pretty new. So John Sides is the William R. Keenan Chair Professor of Political Science at Vanderbilt University. He focuses on American politics and political behavior, as well as comparative politics. He's worked with Vavrik and Warshaw before, as well as um, Chris Talsanovich, in an article mentioned briefly at the end of the last episode. Um, about how representative primaries are, and the article is titled The Representativeness of Primaries. He also focuses on fiscal politics, something interesting. Next, Dr. Vavrick of UCLA. She is the Marvin Hoffenberg Professor of American Politics and Public Policy at UCLA. Um, I didn't, when I was looking this up, I didn't see this exactly on her page, but I'm pretty sure before I've also seen her has some um, classes or is associated with the School of Public Communication. I believe that is right, because that's what a lot of her research touches on, but she specializes in, and from what I've seen, is one of the most authoritative voices in public advertisement and its impact on elections. She's written a total of five books already, and I believe another one is coming out quite soon about the 2020 election. If you look back, she has I don't know when they start exactly, but she had one about 2012, I think, called The Gamble, 2016, called Identity Crisis. Identity Crisis with a couple researchers, um, and then has another one about the 2020 election. So I would always be reading her opinion about elections, and particularly the role of TV advertisements um, and public communications overall and its effect on the election outcomes. Um, finally... Dr. Christopher Warshaw, he's an associate professor of poli-sci at George Washington University. He too focuses on American politics, representativeness, elections, local politics, as well as statistical methods. Interestingly, he has also studied term limits and direct democracy. Our last article we looked at had to do with term limits. So there's probably some research there. And like I said, 
this week's article is not the same because we're getting in these articles you get very very specific but is at least related is a cousin of in the family tree of poli-sci research of last week's article on um, election terms and electoral competitions so these are the authors of our article and their background so as always i like to think about academic articles not just in themselves, but also the academic area that they're in conversation with, the things that they're running parallel up against, they're challenging, they're building off of. And so um, within each article, we, we see it as well as its huge context in relation to all the other poli-sci research going on. And I think I like to, in order for me to make sense of these articles, is to kind of compare its thesis, its hypothesis, its argument, against common sense or what public opinion says um, or just kind of what's generally held and so i think that television advertisements and elections are something that are on a lot of people's minds a lot of people think about the ads that you see on tv how effective are they um, so an article like this will help us to clarify how really effective are they in what context are they effective and particularly in this article, we're talking about how effective are they in down-ballot elections, which is what we'll get to in a second. So, um, again, an academic research article like this is never going to say, oh, advertisement's good, no advertisement's bad, you know? It's going to be very nuanced in what it says, depending on its methods and constraints, we will be able to find outcomes and even substantive applications from it. So... Just that's something I always like to keep in mind going in. And so in general, in almost layman terms, we're just thinking broadly about TV advertisements and its effect on elections. And so if you're interested in that, then this is something that this article will be able to offer us information on. And it's gonna go into a lot more detail. Well, that's just kind of the, the general kind of cultural understanding background interest that I at least like to think of in relationship to kind of highly academic work. So. They show, they introduce the importance of TV advertisements. I think they say the first one was run in the 1950s. And they get this information from Jacobson and Carson, 2019. 2.75, wow, 2.75 billion was spent to air over 4.25 million ads in the 2015-2016 election cycle. This includes about 1 million airings in the presidential race, 1 million airings in the Senate races, 620,000 airings in house races and 1.25 million airing, airings in other races at the state and local levels. Spending on television advertisements constitutes about 45% of a typical congressional campaign's budget, end quote. And again, that's from Jacobson and Carson. So 2.75 billion spent last in 2015-2016 election cycle. That is a huge amount of money and 45% of the typical congressional campaign's budget. That is pretty wild. So it's really important that these ads are working and let's study how they work, what makes them effective and in what context they're most effective and how their effectiveness um, mechanically operates on those watching the ads. So previous research has found in general that in general presidential elections, there are associations between advertising and voter vote share. And this is much stronger than canvassing or mail, which I was surprised by this. Canvassing and mail have been shown to sometimes have a zero or near zero impact on vote share. So TV advertisements have been found to be associated with 
vote share in general presidential elections. But, and this is where the nuance is really important, there's been little study on the effects of television advertising in any elections below the presidential level. So not all elections are created equally. There's been some research on Senate, some congressional races, um, and some House races, congressional in general, but none on what are called down-ballot state-level races. These are races that, you, again, you probably don't pay as much attention to, something like state attorney general, um, governor is a pretty popular one, but some states even have a state treasurer that you elect. And so previous research shows larger effects just in general um, in Senate elections than in presidential elections. So if you kind of visualize it, you put general president at the top, then you have Senate, House, governor, state treasurer, and state attorney general. And so at the top, we see a little bit of effect, but even as we've studied going down one rung on the ladder, we see a bigger effect in Senate than presidential. So the intuition is that, oh, as we move even further down, as people have less information about these candidates, um, ads, TV ads in particular, will be more persuasive to them. So what they differentiate next is very important, the mechanism by which the um, cause happens, the causal mechanism. And there, there's a difference between persuasion and mobilization. So when you watch an ad and you are, you change your opinion on the candidate based on the ad, that's persuasion. But if you watch the ad, and I wanna make sure that I get this right, um, but mobilization is when an ad changes someone's mind about voting itself. So get someone who wasn't gonna vote to vote. Whereas persuasion is getting someone who's gonna vote the other way to now vote your way. And so you can measure these kind of nuanced differences here. We'll see persuasion in someone who might be of one party but votes for another one or was gonna vote one way and then voted the other or who actively says, oh, I'm actively going after this candidate and voting for them because of an ad I watched. And then we can monitor mobilization by seeing is the is this an abnormal election in terms of Republican turnout or Democrat turnout? Say, you know, only 75% of Democrats usually show up to vote. We can keep an eye on that. If that spikes because of TV advertisements, then the mechanism will seem to be mobilization, not necessarily persuasion or changing of opinions, but more activation to get someone to vote. And we'll get further into this later, uh, but they hypothesize that persuasion is the primary mechanism. And if it is, then it will show up stronger in down-ballot races because voters have much less information on the down-ballot candidates. And an ad may provide crucial information that changes a voter's mind and persuades them to vote for the candidate. The assumption, again, it's an assumption, but it's well-founded, is that most voters already have a good idea of a presidential, of a president's position and therefore will be less likely to find new information in an ad that will sway them otherwise. There's, this is similar to even um, from last episode, I mentioned John Zoller and his research on the origins of mass opinion. And he talks about resistance and how much information you have will determine how much kind of inertia needs to be overcome for you to change your opinion. And so the idea is that when it comes to president, I have a pretty good idea of what Joe Biden or what Donald Trump kind of stand for. 
And so if I learn something new, I'm gonna have a whole bunch, a big repertoire of internal arguments to say, oh, actually, maybe that's a little convincing, but it's not gonna change my mind. Whereas someone running for state attorney general, I probably don't know that much. And so a single ad that says, oh, he is for, or she is for education reform, you know, then I'm gonna say, oh, that seems good. I'll vote for them. That's kind of how it works. And so a personal example of that would be say, when I was in high school, uh, even then before I could vote, I had a general idea of, you know, what the, what the presidents were running for at the time. That was around when Donald Trump was running and even before that more when Obama was going against Mitt Romney. And so, you know, someone would say, oh, Mitt Romney's for this or Obama's for that, you know, it wouldn't really change my mind. But one of my good friends, his dad was running for a state judge's office and I don't really pay that close of attention, especially in high school to who's running for ju office, judge offices, you know, and so, he would just go around school and say, hey, my dad's running for this, this is what he's for, you know? Just one tiny bit of information swayed me and said, you know, I'm not gonna recognize most people on the ballot when I turn 18, but if I recognize him, I'm definitely voting for him. And so that's kind of the intuition here, is that people have very little information, are less extreme, and have little inertia in, in down-ballot races. And so advertisements will be even more persuasive. So in this article, they examined five presidential elections from, what is it, like 2008, I think, through 2020, 331 U.S. Senate elections, 226 gubernatorial elections, so governor elections, 3,859 U.S. House elections, 237 other state-level elections, which is a total, or is that 38, 59... I think that's lower level, or is that, it might be house elections. Anyways, a total of 4,500 different races. So it's a, it's quite a sizable sample size from president down to state treasurer. Um, to give the main results early on, they do find what their intuition is telling them, which is that advertisements, specifically TV advertisements, have a much larger effect in lower level ballot races versus presidential elections. And there's some big numbers, so pay attention. Quote, the apparent effect of an individual airing is two to four times larger in gubernatorial US House and US Senate elections and 10 to 19 times larger in other statewide races compared with presidential elections. So in lower level state rate, end quote, sorry, end quote after with presidential elections. So in lower level state elections, advertisements, a single advertisement is gonna have a 10 to 19 times larger impact than a presidential race. So that means that whatever the effect of the presidential outcome based on TV advertisements, the effect in the lowest level of running is gonna be 10 to 19 times larger which is pretty, pretty sizable impact. So returning the idea of persuasion versus mobilization, they do find persuasion to be the main mechanism for driving the voting. They say this because they think about it. If mobilization, whether or not an ad activated a partisan, then you would expect turnout numbers to vary with advertisement, but they don't find that the numbers of those who turn out 
for their party very, very much. So advertisements are not consistently associated with turnout for a particular party. So say it's 75%, usually there's a spike in advertisements, it'll probably still be around 75% of the party's turnout. So to put an end in the beginning, advertisements really matter in down ballot elections, and to use their phrase, they pay dividends. And it is this part of academic research that I really like. Again, the results are cool and awesome and interesting, but we're gonna really get into the meat of it and then the conclusions at the end. It kind of reminds me of, I don't know if anyone has read, I'm sure a lot of people have, it was like a bestseller for a while, The Kite Runner um, by Khaled Hosseini. And there's just one part in it where the author talks about how in Afghan culture, it's very normal to spoil, in quotes, the plot of a movie. It was very normal for people to go to the movie theater and then come home and people ask, oh, what happens? What's the ending? Tell me what the ending is, you know? And it's just very normal. No one really cares. Like, oh, it's the ending. It's as much as everything else, you know? But here in the United States, you know, if you say the ending of a movie, the most recent Marvel movie, you have to wait a couple weeks. and It's just this whole, whole cultural difference. And so I think similarly that a lot of people just focus on the result. What is the result? Tell me the climax of the article and then I'm gonna move on from there. But there's so much value in the journey and everything along the way that it all flows together. And so tell me the results, but I'm still missing out on a lot of it. And so if I were to go to the theater, and even though I knew the end, I'm still so intrigued in, in all the rest of this. And so just a small brief comparison, it makes me think of, um, of that part in the, in the novel. I highly recommend it. I think it's a super, super good book. I'm not a very fast reader, but I do remember finishing that one in like three days, which is highly abnormal for me. So I do recommend The Kite Runner. Okay, so let's get into it. Um, as they survey some of the background literature, Zoller comes up, who I mentioned last time in a study of mass opinion. Um, he argues, like I mentioned just a moment ago, that voters exhibit types of resistance that prevent them from being swayed by a single advertisement. And also there are other arguments, uh, they're from Lodge or Loge and Tabor in 2013, is that people gain an affective tag for political objects. And an affective tag means that you attach an emotional feeling, you have an emotion that you can't even describe with words, but you have an emotional response to a political program, person, or policy. And this is something that is known in psychological research. I read about it in The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. He talks about how we can attach emotions, we can attach affect that is beyond consciousness to objects, everyday objects. You know, I think of a certain pen that I have that I just have kind of this gut reaction of negativity against. That is not huge, it's almost subconscious, but I just think of some pens that I have and some pens that I have that I like more. And things like freeways, streets, uh, plants, objects in your house, we attach little affective tags to all of these different things. And so it's kind of a fun thing you can try yourself of just think of something, think of your hamper, think of your pillow, think of a freeway or a street near your house and just see is there a, is there a gut positivity that comes with that or a gut negativity that comes with that. And so that's what an uh, affective tag is. And so some research would just, would argue that people develop affective tags toward politicians, toward, towards policies, 
um, towards programs. And so that's why people vote certain ways and have a hard time switching. So in sum, people who have more information are likely to change their mind. People who have, oh yeah, more information are less likely to change their mind based on advertisements. Interesting note, Hopkins in 2018 showed that Americans who could name their governor dropped from 87% in 1947 to just 66% in 2007. So a lot less people who can name their governor nowadays. Um, so given this information, the more local you get, Americans know less about their representatives. You could say there's a negative relationship between locality of a political office and knowledge of voters, which I think is ironic and deserves a discussion of why some of the people who govern the most related parts of your life are the least known, yet some of the most remote, not saying that the president, not saying Senate, not saying House is unimportant, because it obviously is, uh, but it's just interesting to note that a lot of the local government that makes a lot of important decisions, you know less about, even though they're geographically and governmentally closer to you. Anyways, that deserves a discussion all in of itself. So the idea is that the closer that you get, the less that you know, the lower down the ballot, the less that you know, and the less that you know, the more likely you'll be, you'll be able to be swayed by an advertisement. As I mentioned, my friend who gave me a single sentence advertisement and I was swayed to vote for his dad because I knew nothing about who was running for the judges out in the um, San Fernando Valley. So let's get into their research design. How do they test this? How do they go about it? What's their dependent variable? What's their outcome variable? Or what's their treatment variable? So their treatment variable, remember in causal inference, a lot of the language is similar to medical trials. So the treatment, like the dosage in medicine, is the net democratic advantage in TV airings in the last 64 days or two months before election day. So the number of ads more for the Democrats in the last two months of elections in a given county. So similar treatments have been used before. They're not, this isn't totally new and it's even been used by this group, I believe it says. Um, they get the number by calculating the number of Democratic ads minus the number of Republicans. So if that number is negative, it means there's a Republican advantage. If that number is positive, it means there's a Democratic advantage. And the visuals here are just stunning. Like I said, all of these APSR articles are free online and you can find them. And I would really recommend looking at this one. Let me get exactly what it is. It's figure one, Democratic Advertising Advantage in hundreds of ads across geography in an illustrative set of offices and years. And it's really neat because you can see, it shows a map of the nation and then going from light blue to deep blue is a strong democratic advantage. And then going from light red to strong red is a weak to strong Republican advantage. And so you can see all over the country where there's not advertising, essentially where it's safe to say who's probably gonna win. And then you can see where there's huge battlegrounds of advertising of some are deep blue and some are deep red and some are really light purple, meaning there's a really close numbers of advertisements. So I would recommend looking at the visuals there. They really are beautiful. It's some of the, some really good, some visualizations in this article. So you see some parts, like I said, that are really dark, some parts that are really light, and it just kind of shows how wide a net they're casting. All of the elections, all of the media markets in 
in the 4,500 sample elections that they're looking at. Like I said, the 64-day constraint is in line with previous research that this group has done, in addition to Michael Tesler was in the other research, um, the article that they published, and he's at UCI. An important part of their design, and this gets a little into the weeds, but I think it's worthwhile because it's novel to me, and I think it's a good learning moment, even for me, about how you can use uh, regression discontinuity in a research design. So. An important part of their design is called border county design, and it's a method used in regression discontinuity. I think they call it border discontinuity, and it tries to isolate the causal effect of a treatment by finding an essentially arbitrary line that you can use as a good dividing line above and below, and the dividing line is the sorting mechanism, and it essentially sorts 50-50 to both sides. You have a balanced group on either side of it. Classic example of this, used by Josh Angrist, who's at MIT. He wrote Mostly Harmless Econometrics, where I was introduced in a class to um, causal inference through that book. And so a classic example, imagine an educational setting at high school, where you're trying to determine the long-term impact of a scholarship program, and the scholarship is given to all students who score above a certain score. So if you score above the, uh, if you score above 800 on the SAT, you get the $1,000 of scholarship money. And so researchers wanna say, how effective is this scholarship money at limiting debt or income in the future or yeah, how much student debt you have after two years of schooling or how much income you have in the future? And so again, you could do a naive comparison and say, oh, people who got it, people who didn't get it, people who got this scholarship, people who didn't get the scholarship. But again, we run into our old friend selection bias who says these two groups aren't equal. They're not created equally in the sense of have the same exact chance of having the same exact outcomes that we're looking at. Students who score above 800 are seem to have better academic preparation and maybe better test takers, may have had more even outside training and more um, economic privilege that allows them to score better on this. And so in the future, we would expect the students in that group to have less debt, to make higher incomes based on a lot of other research. And so you can't compare people who got it and people who didn't get it. That's a naive comparison and it's not gonna yield realistic results because it doesn't isolate the causal effect of getting that scholarship. So what do you do? What you do is you look right on that line of 800 on the SAT. And anyone who's been a student for any time, anyone who's taken the SAT, knows there's a bit of arbitrariness in it, that maybe there's a question you guess on, a single question. Maybe there's two or three questions that you're fully confident on, but you missed, or two that you marked the wrong one on, or just one question difference could mean being above that 800 threshold, threshold and being below the 800 threshold. And so, what you can do is if you look really close on either side of that threshold, you get about even groups because it's arbitrary, it's a 50-50, whether you're above that line or below that line within a certain range. I, I love this research design. I think it's so smart yet so intuitive when I first learned about it. But it's really helpful because then within that group, you have a balanced and even group. People who score 810, people who score 790, will probably have the same economic background, like I mentioned before, probably have the same aptitude, 
probably have the same ambitions because they're right there and their difference on that dividing line is essentially arbitrary. So then you can compare those two groups and you can say, oh, this group is exactly the same, but it received the scholarship. So if you find they have less debt in the future or make higher incomes, then you can say, oh, that, you know, 20 years in the future, who knows how much that scholarship helped. But within the research question itself, you can say this is the treatment group, this is the non-treatment group, and on all other indicators besides the treatment, they're identical, so we can conclude something causally in what happened given the scholarship. So that is regression discontinuity. So how does that apply here? What they're doing here is they're looking at counties, and so they're doing, it's called a border county design. And in this context, you can use the same logic to determine the causal effect of TV advertising in a given county between mass media markets. So they show an image of Pennsylvania, and for this, it's definitely helpful to visualize, but I'm gonna do my best as explaining it without visuals here. And so they show that along mass media market, uh, mass, mass media markets, major cities are usually at the center of them. So in Pennsylvania, something like Scranton, Pittsburgh, and Philadelphia. And then, so that's like the center point and there's a small county around it. And then there are tons of counties outside of it. And then outside of those counties are the mass media market boundaries. And so just think of it two-dimensionally on a straight line. It would go something like this, major city, rural county, mass media borderline, rural county, major city. So it's like a major city, rural county sandwich with a mass media market, mass media market line drawn in between. So on the left gets one advertisement treatment, on the right gets another advertisement treatment. So to use California as example, think of Los Angeles County, rural county, rural county, San Francisco. And between the rural counties, you have the mass media market line. And so that being the border, it shows that the, the rural counties on either side of that border are essentially the same. Both of them have similar demographic makeups. Both of them have similar voting patterns because we couldn't compare the effect of the same treatment on Los Angeles and Fresno County because they're very different counties. And so we're not comparing apples and apples anymore. We're comparing apples and oranges. But if you look at Fresno County as a rural county next to, and I'm just making up some of this information, um, it's Modesto County? <laughs> Modesto County next to it that's also rural, has similar demographic makeup, has similar voting patterns. But the only thing in between them is a mass media market border. So one on the north gets a treatment and one on the south gets a different treatment of advertising. So there you can compare the differences in outcome. So the point here is that the mass media market lines are essentially arbitrary boundaries. And so by comparing border counties, imagine going back to our school example, comparing people right on the border of that 800 score, comparing people right on the border of a media market line as an arbitrary border, you get very similar results or you get very, diff very similar uh, demographics, voting patterns, everything else that really matters. And so that way you can control one county gets treatment A, another county gets treatment B, and we can isolate the causal impact of the treatment because our counties are nearly identical in all of the meaningful variables. So I hope 
that that was helpful in explaining. If not, you can look at that. The graphic that they have, this one is gonna be um, figure two, an illustration of the Border County's design. So just going to a little, little bit of the weeds, but that really excites me because it's cool to see, a, for me, a novel application of regression discontinuity. And that, that has been used before, I don't know if it was pioneered by, but is used before by Toniati in 2018. So let's now look, that's their design. Um, which they're using, they have a, a more general design that counts for fixed effects, and then they have design number two to make sure that they're getting accurate results, and that's the border counter. So they have two designs that they're gonna use to compare, cross-check, and make sure that they're getting reliable results. But number one is a little more um, common to use the fixed effects. Number two, this seemed a little novel and worthwhile to spend some time on. So. Next, let's look at table one. We see some statistics about advertisements. There's a summary table that shows democratic advantage in each. And so just as descriptive statistics, here are some of the numbers here. So in all counties, all county races, in terms of advertisements, Democrats average 400 more TV ads, um, and it's in hundreds. So it says four, but it's in hundreds. So 400 more TV ads in presidential elections, 121 more TV ads in Senate elections, and about even slightly less, eight less than Republicans in governor races, and 75 more Democratic ads in House races, and in all counties, Democrats average 11 more attorney general advertisements in attorney general, or 11 more in attorney general, and 11 more in state treasurer races, pardon me. So those are just some sort of Descriptive statistics, they do average more, Democrats average more ads in those races. So, time for results. The results are, the first section of the results is specifically for presidential elections. Remember that they're interested in presidential, but the novelty of this study is they're looking at down-ballot um, elections. So, this is what they find using a naive estimate with almost no controls, they estimate that a 100 ad advantage yields an additional 0.158 percentage point increase in vote share. So what does that mean? For every 100 ads more than the opponent you air, you gain 0.158 percentage points in voting. So if you can out-add your opponent by 1,000 ads, you can gain a 1.6% vote increase, which remember may not seem like a lot, uh, but in really close races that matters. And because vote shares are a zero sum game with 100% being a maximum in a simple Republican Democrat election, and this is oversimplifying, but a 1.6 increase would mean a 1.6 decrease in your opponent. And so 3.2% net difference in a, in a thousand ad um, advantage over your opponent. And like I said, again, this is a naive estimate. And when they add controls, they find, in their words, dramatically decreased impacts of television advertisements on general presidential elections. And so the number they find is about a hundred ad advantage means a 0.04% increase in vote share. So again, if we think about a thousand, a thousand ad advantage is a 0.4 increase and could be a 0.8 net difference in elections. 
Next column is similar. The final three columns use the counter border design. Border design, like I said, is meant to double check on the first design and make sure that the numbers are consistent and that it's all making sense. Um, and they find a very similar story, somewhere between 0.027 and somewhere between 0.08 percentage point increase in general presidential elections, given a hundred ad advantage. So in line with previous research, as a part of this, they find that TV ads do make a difference in general presidential elections in favor of the side with more ads. But, and here's the novel, the interesting, why we're gathered here today and why they put a lot of effort into this research. Let's talk about the down ballot elections. This is where things get really interesting. So they preface by saying that the results from design one with fixed effects and number two, that gets at some confounders using the border um, county design provide the same results. They tell the same story as I think the language they use. So a hundred ad advantage shows much larger effects. So the same hundred ad advantage that leads to about a 0.02% increase in presidential elections, excuse me, I'll be clear about this, leads to a 0.04 to 0.06% increase in Senate elections. That's two to three times as much. And a 0.06 to 0.09% increase in governor elections. So that's a three to four and a half times impact. 0.08 to 0.09 in house elections. That's a four to four and a half. A 0.19 to 0.26 percentage point increase in attorney general elections. And this is the biggest one, a 0.35 to 0.36 percentage point increase in vote share in state treasurer elections. So going back to the thousand comparison, rather than a 0.2% increase in presidential elections in something like a state treasurer election, you could see with a thousand, a thousand ad advantage, a 3.5% swing could be, or 3.5% increase which could be a 7% swing, which is absolutely massive, um, about 17 times, 17 and a half times what it is in a presidential election. So they summarize it with this statement, quote, the effect of a particular ad advantage can be anywhere between a 2.5 and 19 times greater in down ballot races than in a presidential race, end quote. So that's pretty stunning. The major increase in effectiveness there is major increase in effectiveness in down ballot races. What they point out next is that the advantage also comes at a lower cost. So using estimates based on the 2008 election, they estimate 10, that a $10 million advantage, and this is relevant because in current um, primaries and elections going on throughout the country, there's a lot of talk about Republicans having a lot less funding right now and Democrats having a lot of funding advantages in these key states. And so this is one way that a financial advantage could translate into a vote share advantage. So they estimate that $10 million in advantage in a state would be roughly equal to 27,000 votes. This means the average vote is about $365 for presidential elections, but it's only about $200 per voter in Senate elections and $125 per voter in governor races, meaning that a $2 million advantage in a Senate race would gain about 10,000 votes. So a fifth of the cost total 
and then that gets you about halfway, a little under halfway of the vote. So 2.5 times more effect, more cost effective or something around that. So this is all assuming, they point out assuming marginal returns on ads, or assuming that marginal returns on ads are constant. Meaning that if you run 5 million ads to 6 million ads to 7 million ads to 8 million ads, it's gonna be a constant increase in vote share. They do explore this in an appendix if you are interested in it, but they make a small note that only at really high levels of advertisement do you see um, marginal returns decreasing, diminishing returns. So, and then you have to keep in mind too, they note is that it's never one party only running ads in a single area. And so that's not very realistic because the more you run ads, the more they'll probably run ads. And so it's less likely to have, you know, 5,000 more ads than another, than the other party in any particular election. So on the diminishing returns, they do have something in the appendix and it is free source, free to get the information if you do want to check it out. So now we turn to the mechanisms discussed earlier, persuasion versus mobilization. Again, mobilization would not imply the same impact of TV advertisements where persuasion would. So the expectation is that voters will have less information on down ballot candidates, and if they do, they'll be less likely to have strongly formed opinions. They look at the National Annenberg Election Study, NAES, and the American National Election Study, two really prominent data sources on election studies that you can look at. Also, they look at the Cooperative Congressional Election Study, the CCES, which too is quite a prominent and often used um, election data database in, um, in these studies. So they find that respondents are less likely to be able to place Senate and House candidates on an ideological scale than presidential candidates. So imagine, you know, someone says, Donald Trump, where do you place him on a left to right ideological scale? Obama, where do you place him on a left to right? If someone said, a member of the House or a Senate candidate, most voters would not be able to place them or confidently or even accurately place them on a left to right ideology scale. So they find that, that people, this reaffirms their belief that people are less knowledgeable about these down ballot races as people are less likely to be able to place or confidently place House and Senate candidates compared to presidential candidates. About 47% of respondents to the CE to the CCES could not place House candidates on this scale. Um, also, those who could place House candidates, the more knowledgeable people, had more extreme views of presidential candidates. That's interesting. Something that we've even touched on already is that people who tend to have the most information, also the most knowledgeable, also tend to be the most extreme in their positions. So. If you know a lot about an individual House or individual Senate candidate, then you probably are more knowledgeable overall about politics and probably more extreme in your beliefs. So they do find um, that to be shown in the CCS data that people who could place a House candidate also had more extreme views of a presidential candidate. So they find that for every 100 ads aired, there is a small, very small percentage of people, the, the percentage of people who can, who cannot place a presidential candidate on that scale drop. So the more ads, there's a small amount of people that learn something about a presidential candidate, but very small. But the number of people that 
can't place a House, Senate, gubernatorial candidate on the scale significantly decreases with the same amount of ads. So 100 ad advantage may slightly decrease the people who cannot place a presidential candidate, but 100 ads will significantly decrease the, the proportion of people who cannot place a House candidate or a governor on a left to right scale. The effects, they say, are about seven times larger for Senate races than presidential races and 16 times larger in House races than presidential races. So for every one person, say 100 ads means that one person knows more about a presidential candidate. Um, the same 100 ads, 16 people know more about a House candidate. So they do find um, confirmation of their intuition and what they're saying might be the mechanism for this happening. People have less information, and so they are persuaded to vote for the candidate that they have more information on now. As a final wrap-up here to their argument that persuasion is what is occurring, they evaluate partisan turnout as an alternative mechanism, as another variable. Um, what they do, using the data of partisan registration and turnout from um, a public database, I'm not sure if it's private, I think it's called Candid, um, something like that, I did not write that down. But they find that ad amount is not very determinative of the, of the uh, percentage of people who turn out to vote. So let me say that. That increasing ads, or ads in general, are not strongly associated with or determinative of partisan turnout. So the mechanism seems to be persuasion, not mobilization. So I'm not gonna get too much into the weeds on this check in particular, but they do find persuasion, not mobilization, to be the mechanism by which TV advertising affects vote share. So in conclusion, these are the conclusions they draw. Um, this is so far the most comprehensive analysis of TV advertising to date. Specifically, novel information is produced about down-ballot candidates and races and there are much larger effects in down-ballot candidates, down-ballot races, through TV advertising than in presidential elections. That's kind of the general theme here. Um, it is, yeah, here's some of their conclusions. It is effective. Why is it effective? What's the mechanism for this? Because it provides new information to voters, because voters have less information, less inertia, about down-ballot candidates. So they have weaker opinions, more easy to change, are less extreme about down-ballot candidates. They give a final note that their findings are specifically suited for addressing the volume of advertisements, not the content of them. And it specifically focuses on television advertisements, which they, they argue is still the main way of advertising, but there are increasing ways of social media, of online advertising that may in the future overtake TV advertisements in influential, in how influential they are, but for the moment, for a while, they predict TV advertising will still be the dominant mode. And so what about was previous mentioned that they take into account numbers of ads, which is really important. It gives them a good picture systematically of what is going on and how advertisements are affecting election outcomes. But they, they say, they make a note that they cannot, in this broad of a study, they're not looking at the content of ads. So maybe there are certain ads that are more effective than other kind of ads. There are themes that are more persuasive to voters than other ads. And that's just something that is 
not beyond the scope, but it's a different scope of, of what they're researching here. And so that is something that they note. This is focused on quantity of ads and not necessarily the details of them. And so there's still a rich research frontier of breaking down the data of these ads by doing content analysis within each ad in order to find maybe what issues, what messages resonate are more persuasive or more beneficial. That would be important for candidates because say you can find a theme that's twice as effective as your opponent, then you could either cut the ad advantage that they have over you in half with the same amount of money, or you could double your ad advantage with the same amount of money. So. Either way, finding effectiveness of ads is something a little more specific, a little more qualitative than the scope of this study, but they do make a note of that. Something maybe we'll talk about in the future that I'm interested in too is a narrative policy framework. Does look at narratives, themes, content analysis of advertisements, of policy, um, and how policy gets made, but I'm sure it'll also be really relevant in the context of election studies here. So finally, I'd be interested in how um, information shapes the opinions of downstream voters. Do votes in this area become more neutral? Because typically um, people vote more extremely in less visible offices. Only the most knowledgeable will be voting for the really down ballot candidates. But I think people still vote for down ballot candidates, but maybe just toe the party line. And so I'd be interested in how um, in the big scope of things, how this persuasion, how this persuasion, this great persuasion, is is affecting down ballot votes. I hope that that makes sense. And and I'd be curious too: Are we seeing persuasion making people switch parties? Because I have I have a bit of a difficult time imagining you not knowing anything about a candidate and then you watching one or two ads for them. And they're a Republican, you're a Democrat, and then you switch just because of that. I would venture to guess that most people would still vote the party line and just check off Democrat all the way down, even if they did see an ad by an opponent. Um, so I'd just be curious about really specifically honing in on some of the mechanisms and what what the results of that are. That it, is it being neutralized because lots of people still vote the party line or are they more extreme in down ballot elections because they're less visible and only people with the most information who are the most extreme uh, will be voting for there. And so that's just a, in a research area that maybe I'll explore in the future and get a little more information on that. So thank you very much again for listening to episode two of the Political Science Report. I have a Twitter, as I mentioned last time, the Political Science Report or at Report for updates and information about upcoming podcasts and as a medium for finding professors or researchers that you want to follow. A lot of university professors, unless you're a super um, visible academic, a public intellectual, aren't seen enough, I don't think. And so sometimes they're a little hard to track down, you know? They, brilliant researchers who put out really impactful research may only have a couple like two, three hundred followers, you know, and so my this account will be a place that you can see who I'm following and it'll be a lot of people who are publishing if they do have a Twitter. So it is a place that you can find people to follow there. Um, and we will be continuing our series next week, episode three in the six articles with the highest attention scores in the May APSR. This one's interesting. Like I said, it diverges a bit. It is, does state repression spark protests? Evidence from Secret Police Surveillance in Communist Poland by Anselm Hagar 
and Christoph Kukowski. Very, very interesting and a bit of a divergence. It's kind of in line with does repression give more reason to protest so people protest or does it suppress protest? Um, have not read the article yet, but very excited to get into it. And that'll be next week for episode three. And again, thank you so much for watching. Hope to see you next week. Thanks so much. Thank you.